Hi, and welcome. We're delighted that you've joined us here at Tell Me Where to Go, where you'll hear travel tales from all over the world designed to inspire, inform, and get you travelling around this wonderful world. On Tell Me Where to Go, it is my joy to introduce Geoffrey Thomas, who is the Editor-in-Chief of AirlineRatings.com, which is one of the best aviation websites in the world. Jeff, welcome to Tell Me Where to Go. Pleasure. Pleasure, Steve. How are you? Well, I'm very, very well, thank you very much. Good. Good. Uh, the other day, you released the details, you released video of the supposed location of the remains of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 or MH370 as it is more commonly known. A lot of work has gone into this, particularly by a British aerospace engineer, Richard Godfrey. Can you tell me basically about Richard and also how he believes he located where MH370 lies? Yes, look, it's a fascinating story. So Richard Godfrey and a number of other very eminent scientists and aerospace engineers satellite engineers around the world formed a group called the Independent Group not long after MH370 disappeared in 2014. And they collectively used their various skill sets to try and work out where this aeroplane had gone. Initially, that work focused on the Inmarsat satellite pings. Now, for the the listeners who don't quite know what that means, most aeroplanes today upload data through a satellite transmitter on the aeroplane up to a satellite down to a ground station and that's it's all sorts of data typically engine data so for instance an airline like Qantas monitors all its engines in real time so every second data is pouring up to a satellite down to their headquarters in Sydney and they monitor the engines for things like temperature spikes in the engine so that would indicate a problem so this sort of data is uploading what happened on MH370 is that the piece of kit called ACARS, its aircraft communication reporting system, was switched off by supposedly the captain as soon as the plane changed course back towards Malaysia. It was heading towards Beijing, wasn't Beijing, it? That was, that's it was right. Kuala and Lumpur to Beijing. Yeah. When the plane went from Malaysian airspace control to Vietnamese airspace control, in that little tiny window between the two, the plane turned back. Right. So this data failed to be uploaded because the system had been switched off. However, as part of the kit, every hour, if Inmarsat satellite has not heard from the plane, it pings the plane and says, are you there? It's a little bit like your internet provider pinging your line, you know, to make sure it works. It's actually live. And the plane pings back, yes, I'm here, because that's something the pilot could not turn off. So every hour we have these pings from MH370 indicating where it is. What we don't have is the flight path in between those yeah. one-hour sectors. The plane gets to what's called the sixth arc, so the sixth ping, which is basically northwest of Perth, Western Australia, about yeah. uh, 2,000 k's. That was at 8 o'clock. Yeah, 8, 8 p.m., are we? 8 a.m. in the morning. 8 a.m., okay, yeah. Yeah, at 19 minutes past the hour, the plane pings the satellite. What the relevance of that is, is that the engines had failed, ran out of fuel, 
and the ram air turbine deployed is like a little fan, if you like, yep. deploys into the slipstream, spins around, powers the plane back up, and then the first thing that happens is, is the satellite transmitter pings the Inmarsat satellite and says, I'm, I'm here again, you know. Yep. So using that data, all sorts of people have been tracking this aeroplane, including Richard Godfrey. The part we really didn't have is the part between 819 and when it hit the water. What happened? So Richard has also done reverse drift modelling, which is where all this debris ended up. And he's done drift modelling, which brings him brings him his analysis to a spot almost identical to where the University of Western Australia said the plane is, and they use drift modelling as well. So what Richard has discovered, although the database has been around for a while, it's a fascinating technology called weak signal propagation, which is a digital radio communication protocol to do with ham radio operators. Now, ham radio operators are sending signals around the world, thousands and thousands and thousands of them on the air all over the place. Put this very, very simply, is when a plane flies through that yes. radio wave, it disturbs it. Yeah. Now, all of these radio waves have been in a database since 2008. So he has developed some software tools to help him interpret the aberration, and there's two or three software tools, and... The beauty of this is that these disturbances are every two minutes. So he has been able to track this plane all the way to this particular location, which is 1,933 kilometres, right. basically due west of Perth. Now, let's just hold this for a second. So people would might ask, okay, well, you know, maybe that's good luck. Well, nine months ago, Richard yeah. came to us at Airline Ratings and the Western Australian newspaper and said, I would like you to adjudicate some blind tests. I'm being given some flight paths by Qantas, a Qantas 747 captain, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and Australia's Maritime Search and Rescue yep. Authority for flights that were never tracked through the usual systems. All he was given was the time and date of the takeoff and the direction. Right. That's all, nothing else. Can I just clarify that um, with the data that he was given, although he was only given that much, the authorities that gave it to him actually knew where the plane he was tracking ended up. Yes. Yep. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, right. I knew. I was given the detail. I was the adjudicator. And so Richard then tracked these four flights right to it, their destination with unwavering accuracy. Now, he wanted to go on and do two or three more of these. And uh, the Qantas captain that I'm working with and I said, no, let's get on with MH370. We are yep. absolutely satisfied yep. this technology is right. So away he went with MH370. The interesting part about this location, as I said, it was very, very close to where Professor Charati Padarachi from the University of Western Australia, one of the world's leading oceanographers, he said this is where the plane crashed. And on his drift modelling, which he gave to yes. Blaine Gibson, the wreck hunter, he then, Blaine Gibson went all around the Indian Ocean and found all this wreckage. He did, Reunion Island and places like that. All that sort of stuff. So that sort of supports the fact that he's in the right spot. Also, when the ATSB's contractor, Fugro, surveyed this particular area back in 2015-16, they did find some anomalies there. Now, they were checked. In fact, they were checked by a Chinese search vessel. Yep. The report came back, there's nothing there. 
when you look at the topography of the seabed, yeah. it's in between two dormant volcanoes. Yeah. And also, there's canyons and ravines there that are another 1,000 metres deep. Now, the depth is 4,000, and these ravines go down another 1,000 metres. Yeah. It could well be that the remainder of this aeroplane at the bottom of some ravine, which is almost impossible to detect. Yes. Are there any theories about what actually happened? For instance, as the plane was being pinged every hour, you would have known what speed it was flying at. They would yep. have known how far it could fly due to how much fuel it took with it. But what surprises me is that nobody seemed to realise until far too late that this flight, which had 227 passengers on board and I think 12 crew from memory, just disappeared. At the time it disappeared, it was still flying, wasn't it? Well, the reality is people were asleep at the wheel. Right. We've got an over-the-horizon radar system called JORN, yep. which is based in WA, in the Northern Territory, yeah. and that's supposed to detect this stuff. But it was turned off. The Indonesian radar was turned off, or some of it was yeah. turned off. There's all sorts of things that were, I think the best way to describe it is people were asleep at the wheel. Yeah. That's all it was. Yeah. But one of the interesting things about this flight path that's really, really fascinating is between these Inmarsat locator beacon recordings, which basically draw a straight line, the flight path was actually a, quite a zigzag. Yeah. And at one stage, he was tracking straight towards Geraldton. Really? Yes, the thought was that he was going to try and make, uh, to, to, to fly to Geraldton and land the plane. I think uh, Captain Sahari, mm. who 99.9% certain he was responsible yeah. for this, he was obviously in a confused state of mind. Because then he changed course, and this is really interesting. He changed course, according to Richard Godfrey, yeah. to a point southwest of Western Australia, which is identical to the waypoint on his flight simulator car right. computer. Because they got all that information afterwards, didn't they? They, they went through his flight simulator and they found that he had actually been practising flying in this area. Basically flying yeah. this particular course, absolutely. At one stage, he had MH370 on this exact track, yeah. exact track. He then changed to go due south instead. And according to Richard Godfrey's tracking, he was descending to make a water landing when he ran out of fuel. And that's when he dove the aeroplane into the sea. It went from 4,000 feet a minute descent rate to 15,000 feet a minute descent so rate. So he basically turned it straight down and it went down at yep. 90 degrees basically into the drink, did it? Basically, yeah. yeah. The aeroplane shattered in, into yeah. thousands of pieces, millions of pieces. I mean, a small, tiny bit. One of the most yeah. interesting pieces, it's commonly called Roy, yeah. and it's a little bit of the emblem of Rolls-Royce. Right. R-O-Y. You've got the R-O-Y yeah. and missing the C-E. It's a little emblem off the engine cowling. It was found in Cape Town. Gosh covered in barnacles and it's commonly called in the industry it's called roy well that's all you could see was roy but it's off it's it's off the engine cowling and that's proof that the aircraft would have disintegrated rather than land or even crashed and and there would be big pieces around and the other thing that really confirms that steve is that there's lots of debris from inside the cabin cabin floor you know the seat back videos the holder that holds the seat there's all that sort of stuff has been found all around the Indian Ocean, yeah. uh, over in Africa and, on, yeah. and all the various islands, Madagascar and Reunion Island, etc., etc. There is absolutely no doubt. And look, 
One of the real tragedies of this thing is every time someone comes up with a theory, the relatives left behind yeah. are tortured by all the wild speculations. Yes. And listeners may not realise this, but there's been 130 books written about really? MH370. Wow. 130. How many of them are credible? I think the most honest book I saw was A Psychic's Guide to MH370, and I thought that's about the most honest <laughs> title of the whole lot. It's just piffle. It's nonsense. It's rubbish. One of the most recent ones was by a French author, a lady, yeah. and she said it was shot down by a laser beam in the South China Sea. Well, that'd be right, yeah. Well, <laughs> but there is not one skerrick of evidence anywhere that this plane crashed anywhere but... 2,000 k's west of Perth, not a shred anywhere. What about the other assumption? The assumption is that everybody except for the person who piloted the plane were dead fairly early into the police. Do you subscribe to that as well? Look, I do. The commonly held theory is that the captain turned off the oxygen yep. and mercifully they just went to sleep yes. and would have known absolutely nothing. There was a famous flight, I think, from WA to Cairns or somewhere. It was mining right. executives was the and exactly the same uh, thing happened, didn't it? Yes. It, now I was up in the middle of the night rewriting the paper yes. for that story. That was a, I was sort of living that in real time. Yes. That was a ghastly thing. Yes, there was about seven or eight people on board. Yes. There was a depressurization event, very slow, and everybody just felt a bit drowsy and then just fell asleep. And that was all there was to it. And no, no pain, no nothing. But did they not have Air Force aircraft up there following? They could see what was happening. Yes, they, they did. They had an there was nothing they, they could they, do? There was, they scrambled an F-18 yep. out of Tyndall in the Northern Territory, flew alongside it, and they said yes. They reported that they could see people asleep, uh, leaning up against the windows, yep. asleep, and the pilot was asleep, slumped asleep over the controls. The plane was on autopilot, and there was absolutely nothing they no. could do. Not a thing. No. Not a thing. But that's not the first time that's happened. It's happened a, it's happened a few times. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. Given where the presumed or a location probable. is or possible or probable location is, it's still going to be very, very difficult to discover because if it has smashed into smithereens, basically, and then it's at a depth of at least 4,000 metres, perhaps even deeper... Do we really have the technology to find that? And if it's been there, what, nearly nine years now, there'll be a lot of sea creatures there and, and things grow over the little pieces and stuff like that. So it would be very, very difficult to find, I should imagine. It's interesting. Don't forget, there's very little oxygen down there. Yeah. It's freezing cold. Yeah. It's almost like everything is in a deep freezer. So that preserves things, doesn't it? For instance, Victor Vikescu, I think his name is probably the pronunciation right, he's a deep sea dive expert and he's currently at the Solomon Islands in the Cristobal yeah. Trench with a submersible. He's down to 8,000 wow. metres. So, yes, we do have the technology. Now, what's going to happen now, I would suggest, is the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau will pull out the scanning data we have yeah. for this area and have another real intense look at this particular spot and see what they might have missed. There's two companies that are extremely interested in coming back to have a look at it. Now, the other thing too, which is interesting, Richard Godfrey said that this is the prime location, but there are two others which are in a line towards Perth where if the plane at the last minute was pulled out of the dive at the last minute, yeah. pulled out of the dive, it could be a little bit further to the east. 
right. and that would take it into an area that has not been searched. Right. So the first thing is to examine the scanning data we already have, see what turns up. But I would expect that a company like Ocean Infinity, which is a US-based yeah. company, incredibly successful yes. company, they say MH370 is unfinished business and they want to find it. Good, because I always felt that the Malaysian government was not being 100% honest about MH370. Do you have an opinion on that at all that you would like to share? Yes, I do. I don't think they're honest at all. And in fact, uh, that particular government, as we already know, wasn't honest about anything. Yeah. And it's very, very sad that Malaysia has been stained by the corruption of the previous government. Yes. No, I don't think they were transparent at all. I think they handled it hopelessly. Malaysian Airlines used to be a really, really good airline. It was. But unfortunately, this and the MH17, yeah. the shoot down, has just devastated the airline and they're a shadow of their former self, which is really sad because they were once a crackerjack operation. And of course, COVID would not have helped either, would it? No, it's devastated them and as it has many airlines, but it's certainly knocked them for six. Absolutely. I asked you if we could talk about MH370, but the world is starting to open up again. When do yeah. you think that for Australians at least, international travel will become something of a reality again? If we're talking about January 2020, when you could book a flight anywhere yeah. in the world and just go there, I really believe we're looking at 2024 yeah. before we get to that stage. Yes. Clearly, in between time, we're going to have bubbles. Yes. We're going to have green lanes like to Singapore. We're going to have a bubble to New Zealand. Yep. We could have a bubble to the South Pacific. So there's all sorts of opportunities to connect countries that have a similar focus on COVID, yes. similar vaccination rate. But, but the real problem for us, the huge problem for us, is... Africa. Yes. And there are other places as well. Other well South America's another choice place, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well the, well, the vaccination rates are really, really low. Yeah. And this virus is mutating all the time. Mm. And all of a sudden, a new strain comes out like we've got right now. What's really disturbed me enormously in the last couple of weeks is the news, for instance, that two KLM flights flew from South Africa to Amsterdam. Mm. On those two flights, there were a total of 67 people the news, who yeah. had COVID. Yes. They're supposed to be double vaccinated before they can fly, number one. Number two, they're supposed to have a COVID test before they fly and be proved to be, to be negative. Yep. So how come we've got 67 people on board who all test positive to COVID? Yes. And one of the big problems we've got is corruption and people buying test results. Now, we've already had a couple of cases in Perth where people were tried to bribe people to give them, and one we yeah. had allegedly a nurse yes. who was not jabbing people, allegedly, right. which is still before the courts. We know we've had vaccination fraud in India, yes. in the Netherlands, in France, in the United States, and in England. This is a very unsettling thing as far as you want to go travelling somewhere. You're thinking, well, yes, I do. But am I going to get exposed to these sorts of issues and problems on right. my journey? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's going to be slowly, slowly for a while until we get on top of these sorts of issues. And hopefully things free up, you know, middle of next year yeah. towards the end of next year. But free and easy travel, 2024. I tend to agree with you, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Thomas. Mm. Editor-in-Chief of AirlineRatings.com and I can recommend that anybody that is interested in aviation go to AirlineRatings.com. It is a simply brilliant aviation website. 
Thank you for chatting to us on Tell Me Where to Go. Pleasure, Steve. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check back on our website for other stories, specialists, funny travel tales, and anything else you might need to plan and safely enjoy your next trip. We look forward to hearing you back again soon. Mm -hmm.